Father, it is amazing love that you would determine and plan before the foundation of the world to redeem a people whom you, according to this plan, knew you would create and would fall. And yet their fall, the greatest weight of it, would fall on your son for those you would call out of that condemned people into the most intimate fellowship with yourself. And we here who know you stand as a testimony to that eternal plan and to that saving grace and the finished work of Christ. We stand as a testimony to the promise of the Spirit that he sent, who unites us to the Son, fills our heart with hope, teaches us, sustains us, gives us a love for your word, gives us ears to hear your voice in it, and a heart to follow our shepherd. We pray that you would do these things even now as we come to the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, that you would teach us. Teach us to fear you and to keep your commandments. Teach us to think soberly and wisely in light of the end, the judgment to come. A judgment we fear not as as we just sang because of condemnation for our sin, but a judgment that produces fear because we don't want to disappoint our Savior whom we love. So fill our hearts, teach us these things we ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, as we come uh, once again to the uh, final verses of this book we've been spending some time in, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 12. And this is, by all intents and purposes, uh, our final message on this uh, concluding passage, um, although that will take some effort even this morning. But nonetheless, we come now to the final verse, actually, verse 14 of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And let me, let me begin just by making this general statement that, as we know, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes, indeed the main theme, one of the main themes, is that life in this world seen on its own is meaningless. In other words, life in this world and, and everything that entails seen as an end in itself actually has no value. It is, as the preacher says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's futile. It has no ultimate significance. It has no ultimate weight. The best it can offer is temporary pleasures, but that's it and they're fading and even those are uncertain and don't often bring everything that we want from it. And so that is the main theme. Uh, that he's caused us to face and to consider. And so in one sense, you could say that one of the, the truths that it, Solomon wants to impress upon our mind in the Spirit of God through Solomon uh, is this, that everything in this life is really of no ultimate significance in and of itself. But that's not how he concludes the letter, and that is, of course, not where he's ultimately taking us. Where he's ultimately taking us is to realize that everything has significance because everything that we do in this world ultimately will be presented to the God who has created us. Our lives will be presented to him, and so therefore, whatever we do has eternal significance. I think one author captured this well, and so before we read the passage, let me... Let me it's a rather lengthy, but uh, it's worth reading in, in whole. That captures this idea. He says this, At the final judgment, it will matter how we used our time. 
Whether we, went, whether we wasted it on foolish pleasures or worked hard for the Lord, it will matter what we did with our money, whether we spend it on ourselves or invested it in the eternal kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, what our hands touched, and what our mouths spoke. Whether we obeyed our father and mother will matter. So will the look we gave them and the little comment we made as we were walking away. What we did for a two-year-old will matter, the way we made time for her and got down on her level. What we said about someone else's performance will matter, the sarcastic remark or the word of genuine praise. The proud boast and the selfless sacrifice will matter. The household task and the homework assignments will matter. The cup of water, the tear of compassion, the word of testimony, all of it matters. The final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. And well said. And that is essentially the message and the conclusion that Solomon brings us to here at the end of Ecclesiastes. While nothing in and of itself in this earth matters from any value that it has inherent to itself, everything matters in terms of how we live our lives in relation to God. So let's just read the last two verses, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, and then we'll consider this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. This is the conclusion of it all. This is the the summary of it all. We noted last week there in verse 13, the summary requirement of all of humanity is that we fear God, that we reverence him, that we acknowledge him as creator, that we trust in his word, that we respond righteously to his requirements from us, that we worship him for who he is, what he's done, that we fear sin, that we ultimately then obey him. That we align our wills, we align our lives, we align our thoughts, we align everything about us as human beings made in his image with him who made us, with his own character, with his own nature. That is the sum of it all. And what we'll look at this morning in verse 14, what he grounds that in is that our response to what he requires from us will ultimately be evaluated by him who gave us life. God will bring every act to judgment, whether it is hidden or whether it is good or evil. And this then is the final point. The day of reckoning will reveal truth. The day of reckoning will reveal truth. We could say the day of accountability, the day of evaluation, the day of judgment. The day when we stand before God will reveal truth. And this is the final reality that he grounds every other exhortation in that we will give an account Now, what does he mean here? What does he mean? Well, let's just consider the word judgment, just briefly. The term itself, as one standard work noted, uh, says this. It represents what is doubtless the most important idea for a correct understanding of government, whether of man of man by man, or of the whole creation by God. It it, it captures not only what God requires of man, but God's own governance of his creation. 
Now, in a more practical sense, it's used to refer to all aspects of government and its judicial and governing role. Its essential meaning is a decision based on the standard of righteousness and the consequence of that decision. That's a simple way to think of it. It's often used in terms of the way that justice was to be executed in Israel. Uh, Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in judgment in the decisions that you make upholding righteousness among the people of God. He requires the people to keep all of his statutes and government, just, uh, judgments. Some judgments were worthy of death. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy 21.22, it says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death, and you hang him on the tree. That translation, worthy of death, is actually judgment of death. It's the same term here. And so it refers to the way that God upholds justice, and his people are to uphold justice among the nation. And so the heart of the idea here is that of justice. In fact, uh, one standard work said this, that if you could take all of the nuances of the term and how it's used, and it's over 400 times in Scripture, the best translation would be this, the idea of justice. The idea of justice. And so the mark of a king of God, who was a righteous king, was that he upheld justice in the land. Let me just give you one example. Solomon actually uh, wrote this psalm in Psalm 72. He says this, Give the king your judgments, that's our word, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Same word, justice. Justice and judgment, upholding righteousness in the world is the idea here. And as it is with God's king, as it is with God's ruler over the nation, so it is with God over all that he has created, over all of those who bear his image. Let me just give you one, one passage on this as we unfold this a little bit. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many islands be glad, clouds and thick darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. He rules in righteousness, he rules in justice, and he will uphold those foundational aspects of his character, he will uphold them to the end and all will be accountable to them, righteousness and justice. So when we come to this statement by Solomon, which is, by his own words, a summary of how we are to think and live before God, the idea that God will bring every act to judgment is simply to say that ultimately the God who gave us life and the God who created all things will uphold what is righteous and just among all men. He will uphold justice in his universe, his world, among his image bearers. Now, judgment is not a very popular thing to talk about. Uh, it never has been. We always can pick on kind of our culture, but it's really throughout the history of the church. I mean, that's, a, that's something common. We don't, as those who are under judgment naturally, really want to emphasize that part. But let me note this point first as we consider this a bit. And that is this, that judgment is a necessary reality. It is a necessary reality. It is essential. It's a necessary reality. God will bring every act to judgment, and he must do so. In fact, the reality that God will judge the earth and all men in it is evident from the very opening words of Scripture, the very 
statements of creation, when God communicated to man, he gave a requirement, he gave a command with a just consequence. You shall eat from any of the trees in the garden, but not from the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For what? The day you eat of it, you will die. That is a statement of justice. That is a statement of judgment. He who gave the command will uphold the command. He who established what righteousness looks like will uphold that righteousness. So at the very point of the creation of man, God establishes man as a morally responsible creature and himself as creator who holds man morally accountable to his commands. As being made in the image of God, as moral creatures, it means we have dignity, yes. It also means that we have accountability to him. And one goes with the other. There's no real dignity without accountability. So when man rebelled and disobeyed God, sin entered into the world and brought the world under the condition of condemnation, under judgment. So from Genesis 3 on, that is the primary way that God inherently by his own nature and his created order stands in relationship to his creation as judge. Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world through one man, death through sin. Through him, because all have sinned. The first instance of that was Adam and Eve being put out of the garden. They, as now those who possessed sin, could no longer dwell in God's presence in the same way. They were put out. The garden was protected, as we know. The next instant was Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, and he was banished to wander the earth. The next account comes in Genesis 5 when we have that repeated refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, reminding us that there is a new condition of the world now, and it is one in which sin is present and death is present. Not long after that, we have the destruction of the whole earth in the flood where God sat as judge, as king of the earth, when he destroyed those who rebelled against him as image bearers. This is followed by another act of judgment, God disbanding humanity into different nations by confusing their language, and on it goes. It is a necessary consequence of God's holiness as ruling over an unrighteous people. So the reality of a future judgment and a day of reckoning, though not often talked about, is absolutely essential to understand God's own nature and his ultimate requirement from man. Psalm 9, 7 through 8. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. That is how things are. That is what Abraham appealed to when he said, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right when he plead for mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah? So the first point is simply to note this, that judgment is necessary. It's necessary because of the nature of God. It's necessary because of the morally responsible position of his image bearers of man and because of the reality of sin. Let me note next with this is that judgment is necessary to establish justice. There is so much sin and injustice and unrighteousness in this world that seems to go without answer. And as a matter of fact, Solomon has already pointed us to this many times. 
Let me just remind you of son. In chapter 8, we, we covered this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. He says in verse 14, there is a futility which is done on the earth. That is, there, is a righteous, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. In other words, justice is not ultimately met and witnessed and upheld in this earth. Injustice reigns. What gives any hope, what gives any sense of stability to righteousness, what gives any grounding in upholding justice is the fact that we know that is consistent with what God will do. He will uphold justice in his universe. And ultimately, we don't get, lose hope at accounts of injustice that are beyond our ability to rectify because we know that ultimately it will be rectified by God himself. If sin and unrighteousness had no ultimate accountability, there would be no justice in the universe. We would live in a morally rogue universe, which is a frightful thing to consider and a somewhat hopeless thing as well. He says in Psalm 94, on this point, just briefly, He says, O Lord of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exalt? And for those who love righteousness and justice, that is the cry of the heart. How long must we see it? And the answer is, and the confidence is, that there is a judge of the earth who will uphold it in his own time. More to say, but let that stand. When will this judgment take place that Solomon's talking about? When will it take place? Well, he must be referring here to the judgment that comes after death. A judgment that takes place within the presence of God on the purview or the precipice of eternity. Now, Solomon's already been hinted throughout his book. Let me just remind you. In chapter 3, verse 17, he said, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. That is looking to the future. Again, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says this, Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know, I know this, I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear him openly. Well when, not necessarily in this life, but in the end, it will be well with them. Here what he's hinted at comes to its fullest, a fuller expression. So this is the judgment then related to the resurrection and the eternal state. The resurrection and the eternal state. We understand that every human being who bears God's image will live forever in a physical and conscious state for eternity. Every single person there are two states, of course. One will be resurrected to an existence of punishment and death, what we refer to, what Scripture refers to as hell. Or we will be resurrected, covered in the righteousness of Christ, and we will be resurrected in bodies fit for heaven and eternity in his presence. Listen to just some of the statements where this is emphasized. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
John chapter 5, the Lord said this, Do not marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Matthew 25, 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So when will this judgment take place? Ultimately, it will take place after death. It will take place after death, and it will determine the eternal state of each person. What is the standard of judgment? Well, he notes here, he says this in verse 14, every act God will bring to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Every act and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The judgment then, the criteria is based on the things that we actually do. Based on the things that we actually do. Note first what he says. Every act. Every act. Not one is missed. Jesus put it in this way. Every careless word that is spoken, we will have to account for it. There will be an accounting for it, he said, in the day of judgment in Matthew 12, 36. Not only words, but every thoughtless, selfish, proud, deceitful, hypocritical, angry, lustful act is noted by God and will be reckoned with by God. In terms of judgment of the wicked... This finds its climactic expression in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. He says, And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. Not one is missed from the omniscient, all-seeing God. None is hidden from him. As he says, everything which is hidden will have an accountability to God. And there is, of course, nothing hidden from God. Put in a positive light is Psalm 139, where David says, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Nothing covers the sight of God, is covered from the sight of God. Romans 2.16, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, again, this includes the, all of the evil acts, but it also includes as an encouragement for those who do good, every act of kindness, generosity, sacrifice that was unseen by others is known and treasured by God. Nothing will go unaccounted for. Now, that said, it's important, it's important to take note here of something that can be misconstrued. If we read this out of context, both of Ecclesiastes and the canon of Scripture, then it can almost sound like a moralistic appeal, exhortation. It could sound like the religion of Islam and every other false religion that says, well, well, then I hope if this is the case, if this is the summation of it all, I hope that my good outweighs my bad. I hope that the good things that I've done are more than the bad things that I've done, and God will consider that and be kind to me in the end. It could be... If misunderstood and the scriptures read superficially, taken out of its context, tried to be mean that by someone. However, this presents an overwhelming problem. And that is this, that if we want to make that the standard, if that's what he's talking about, God is absolutely holy and anything less than perfect holiness is sin. And so that's a problem. James 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. Why? Because God isn't holy in compartments. God's absolutely holy. To sin against God at one point is to sin against the whole persons of God. And so it is with the law. To break the law at one point is to offend the holiness of God and is to become under its condemnation. 
Galatians 3.10 says this, quoting from Deuteronomy, curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So the fact is that no one, secondly then, can escape sinning. And so if we want to do it on a moralistic standard, we have a problem. For Solomon has already said in chapter 7, verse 20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. So even the best of men can only present to God a life that deserves retribution for sin. Even the good things we do are tainted with sin. Isaiah 64, 6, we're familiar with this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. One said this, commenting on that, hearkening back to his own experience in chapter 6, verse 5, Isaiah declares that the fundamental effect of sin is defilement, defilement in the presence of the absolutely clean one. Some take that as referring only to those who were rebellious in the generation, and it certainly refers to though, but the context in that passage includes the fundamental problem of the nation of Israel as a whole. They can't escape it, that no matter what they do, their deeds are tainted with sin. As a matter of fact, Isaiah himself, and that book bears his name, is said this when he was presented to in the presence of God, in the full sight of the glory of God. Woe to me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. He was the most righteous man in Israel and he says, I'm condemned. David, the most righteous king Israel has ever known, said this in Psalm 38, my iniquities have gone over my head as a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. Paul, that righteous apostle, said this, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so the reality is, even the best of men, even the most godly of men, are tainted with the reality of sin. So it can't mean that somehow I have to do more good than bad. On top of that, consider this, that our adversary is described as an accuser, as an accuser of the brethren. When Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 is standing before the angel of the Lord, It says this, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He says later, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. In Revelation 12.10 it says of Satan that he is the accuser of our brethren. He's been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before God. Now here's a problem with that. One, One said this, the accuser can appeal to justice. His force resides in the rightness of his accusation. So when Satan stands as an accuser of a brother, he's not lying. When he accused Joshua of sinning, it was true. And Satan appeals in his accusation to the justice of God, to the righteousness of God. Look at this sinner. He deserves condemnation. And if it were left at that alone, he would be absolutely right, and we would bear the same fate that is destined for him, eternal judgment. The only human being that he could not accuse is the Son of God himself because he had no sin, but he can accuse us. So if the judgment here of good or evil is based on the moral ability of human beings to meet an appropriate degree of holiness, everybody is doomed. He can't mean that. He can't say that. He can't mean that. And let's go even more. His knowledge is not only perfect of the deed 
It not only then would leave everyone hopeless, but he has a knowledge of the motive as well, whether good or evil. Well, this again opens up some complexities, doesn't it? Whether good or evil. This gets us a little closer to what is being said. Deeds are always the fruit of a motive of an internal reality. We're always motivated for some, by something in everything that we do. So it's the motive, actually, that is the source of judgment, the good or the evil, the measure of judgment, I mean. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says this, Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness, and listen, disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. If you'll remember the... Declaration of condemnation in Genesis chapter 6. He says the thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil continually. Now again then here, it's essential to be clear. This judgment applies to both believers and to unbelievers, to religious and non-religious. It is a judgment that will prove both the reality and the quality of each person's life and faith. It's a comprehensive judgment that it refers to here. So we have to ask the question then, what makes an act good or evil? What will meet the the evaluation or the discerning decision of God of whether what we did was good or whether what we did was evil? If in fact all we can do of our own is evil, even when what we would, our best moments. Well, let's... Consider just a few points here. For the unbeliever, for the one who rejects God's revelation and testimony of himself, for the one who rejects any revelation of God, then anything they do is evil by very definition because it's done in disregard of God's glory and his righteousness. There is no good that someone who rejects God's revelation of himself can do. Only evil can come from their lives. Rank heathen who pursue sin, who are the worst of the lot, as you will, are described then as children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Many passages, let me just read one for time's sake. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So there's... Nothing that somebody who rejects the revelation of God and lives wantonly in their sin could ever do that would be acceptable by God. There's judgment. What about the moralistic person who rejects God's testimony of Christ? This is a person who is a good neighbor, who is a good employee, who is a nice person, who is a sacrificial and a good friend. What about that person? How will they stand in this judgment of whether their deeds are good or evil? Well, this person is well, and yet, and you say they're so good, they're so kind. How could judgment come from them? And yet it's somebody who rejects the testimony of God, the revelation of God in Christ. No, I don't really believe that, but man, I'll do anything for you. I, I care for you, and I'll sacrifice everything for you. And sometimes thinking not biblically, but through just a human lens without reference to God, we think, well, how could God punish someone like that? How could they be considered in this judgment evil when they've done so much good? Because God's testimony to that person is that they're calling God a liar. Listen to 1 John chapter 5. For context here, chapter 5 verse 10. He says this, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe has made him a liar. 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his own son. So therefore, what about the nice moralistic person who yet rejects the testimony of the gospel, as we read in 2 Thessalonians, who does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about them? Well, however good they may be by human standards, they are in the face of God calling him a liar and saying, I don't need your son and I certainly don't need to worship him. I'm just fine with my own goodness, thank you. And so there's those who will stand before God, though having lived what seems like a good life before men, a life of rejection of their creator, and they will be found to be evil. Their deeds is self-righteous. What about those who are in the church? What about those who have a religious profession? Those who make a profession of faith in the one true God, who display some activity or commitment What about those? Will everybody automatically be found to be good in this evaluation with no evil? No. No. Even those who make right professions will stand in this judgment and be found as evil. Listen to this. Of the religious leaders who were rich in religious knowledge and religious deeds, and it was the right God, the right religion, and the right scriptures. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of robbery and self-indulgence. There's motive. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. He said to them in John chapter 5, I know you. I know you. He says, You do not have the love of God in yourself. And so you seek glory from one another. But you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only true God. It's for this reason that you reject me. And so they were religious, but on this day of judgment that Solomon is talking about, they will be shown not to be good, but to be evil. What about professing Christians who sincerely think they're doing good and will be accepted by God as worthy of heaven? Well, there were some who will be found false there as well. Even some who have many kind of religious commitments and sacrifice. Putting this again on the, the, Israel, the Israel's religious leaders, he said this about those who trusted in themselves. They told a parable, some people who are treated in themselves that they were righteous. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Fast twice a week, pay tithes of all I get. He says, I'm not like other people. Romans 10, he says, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Philippians 3, he says, to the righteousness Paul did, the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So here's now the religious person who's not inwardly harboring sin, but is actually thinking they're sincerely following God, but trusting in their following of God to be accepted by him. And then again, as I mentioned, what about those who are in the church? What about Christians? Well, listen to this warning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, this is the judgment Solomon is talking about. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They thought they were doing good. They had activity. They had faith. They had agreement with some measure of right doctrine. And yet, they thought in this judgment they would be declared good, and he says, you are lawless. You're evil. So, that's for many professing Christians who think church attendance, church activity, and doctrinal affirmations or anything else is evidence of salvation, and in fact, it's not. 
Many times, for some, it is a false insurance. Again, these believe they're doing good and will be accepted, rewarded for their good acts, but then evaluated by God, they will be evil. So what is he talking about then? How then can we know whether it will be good or evil? How can we know what we present to him will not receive condemnation, but will receive commendation and be an honor to him? And this is particularly poignant when we think about the fact that God says the very evidence of saving faith, the very evidence of the reality of knowing him is that we produce good works, that we have good deeds, that we do good things. What makes the act good then? Again, well, we've noted this before. What makes an act good and an evidence of saving faith is this. Well, Solomon's already told us, hasn't he, in verse 13. When it's done out of the fear of God. When it's done out of reverence for God. When it's done out of trust in God and a love for God. When it's done out of faith in his promises. When it is directed not as an end in itself to somehow undergird our own righteousness and preserve our own righteousness, but when it's done with an understanding of our complete lack of righteousness and a trust in him. It's done out of gratitude. That's what can make it good. Ultimately, it's an act in the whole of Revelation that's done as a fruit of faith in Christ. Listen to how Christ described this himself. Just listen. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. As, will be exposed. But here, he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. That what he did What you do is evidence of a sincere trust in God's testimony of Christ. These are the good works that God's accept. These are the ones that reflect God's glory. These are the good works that even Revelation says will clothe the true saints that will clothe those who truly belong to him. Listen to verse 8. It was given to her, the church, made ready as a bride for the lamb, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. What is the fine linen? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Righteous acts of the saints. Those things that were done who are counted holy in Christ. Those who have put no confidence in the flesh. Those who glory and worship in Christ Jesus. Those who have not loved their life even unto death so they would be faithful to the testimony of Christ. Those are the good deeds. That's how a deed can be good before God. And yet, saying that, it has a further meaning here. Even those who are truly regenerate and saved will undergo a judgment and an evaluation regarding the, not the legal guilt of sin, but the quality of faith. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. Everyone then, even true believers, must stand before Christ and give an account. Does that motivate you at all? When Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 5, that was his motivation to live a life of holiness that pleases the Lord. It was his motivation to exhort other believers to make sure of the reality of their salvation. It was a motivation. Does that motivate you? 
that you will stand before Christ. You see, if we, if we have a one-sided and anemic view of Christ who is only love, only grace, and no accountability, no holiness, no glory as judge, then that will be little impulse for us to pursue holiness because there will be little real gratif- uh, uh, gratitude for salvation. But yet he says we will give an account. And for some, even those who truly know him, they will present their life and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and they will receive a reward and others will be saved, but just barely. Listen to this. No man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If a man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Just barely, you could say. So certainly those who manifest because of not only what they do, but the reason they do it, that they are outside of grace, will receive the judgment, and those all in one category will be counted as evil and receive judgment. Even for those who have trusted in God's promise and grace, there is yet still an accountability, and it motivates us out of love, out of the fear of the Lord, which he also says in 2 Corinthians. But yet this still, this still leaves a certain question, a certain kind of question, of how then can that good deed still be good? Because even as Christians, we understand again what Paul said, that even our best deeds, even our deeds of faith, even our deeds that are, are motivated in some measure by a love for Christ, even still we can say with Paul, I see that the principle of sin is in me. We still say that. We can still say that the best thing that I offer to God is not enough on its own to be accepted by him. So then how will I stand and how can I stand even if I believed in Christ and be evaluated as having done something good and pleasing to him? So then lastly, let me consider this. How does this judgment relate to the person of Christ? How does this judgment relate to the person of Christ? Or we could expand that and say, how does it relate to the person and the work of Christ? The person of Christ in his sin-bearing death, in his obedient life on our behalf, in his resurrection, in his gift of grace. Well, let me know briefly what's already been said and hinted at. The judge, ultimately, that's anticipated here, not that Solomon would have known this, but as Scripture would unfold and the progress of Revelation would bring more and more clarity The one he's ultimately looking at here is Christ himself, who is the judge of all the earth. He takes this role on as the God-man appointed by the Father. He has the right, Christ does, as the God-man, because Scripture makes clear he did not come into existence at the incarnation. The incarnation is itself the coming as man and taking on humanity of the eternal Son of God. So he has the right as creator. Colossians says this, that Christ is the one through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. He stands over all of creation on equal footing with the Father as one who, as God, brought all things into existence. It was the will of the Father, Revelation 4, 
and it was through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, God working as God, though three persons. And so he is the head over all creation as creator, and he shares the authority and the honor of God as judge. John 5, he says this, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. By right of his deity, by right as creator, he is the one who will judge. One said this, The brighter displays of the gospel revelation bring the judge before us in all his glorious and unspeakable majesty. God is the judge in the person of the divine mediator. But not only that, Christ has the right to judge as redeemer and the ruler over everything that was made through him and for him. He has the right to judge. He is the only righteous judge. He's the only righteous man that has ever lived without sin. And so he has the right to judge for that. He fulfilled the law's demands. Remember? The father said of him, you are my beloved son at the baptism in whom I am well pleased. Listen to these amazing words. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Here it is, born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law. Under the law's authority, under the law's requirement of man for perfect righteousness, he was born under it. Why? So he could fulfill it for us. And by fulfilling it for us, he earned the right as the God-man to be not only the mediator in grace, but the one who is the judge of all the earth. Most significantly, though, here, we're pointing to Christ in another way. That he is the judge. He's also the one who was judged. How can then, even if our best works, even when done out of faith... How can they be accepted by God as good? It is because those who have truly trusted him are covered in this righteousness of Christ so that that work, listen carefully, that is done is not in any way done as a means of God accepting us. It's done out of gratitude and trust in the one whom he has made us acceptable to God through his life and his death and his resurrection. In other words, it's done out of faith. The sinfulness of it has already been atoned for. Therefore, whatever is sincere and right about it in trust in Christ can be accepted as such, even if it's little faith. Even in the most minuscule of faith, even in the smallness of the offering, it is accepted by God because Christ has already satisfied the law's demands for us, both in what it requires of us for righteousness and what it requires from us in terms of our sin. Now, this is something to consider. It can be accepted, and so we can look at this judgment, which should cause us great fear, because we know the evil that still resides in our heart. If you truly know Christ, you know that. Nobody has to convince you of that. You live with yourself. You know that there's evil still in your heart. Even on your best day, you fall short of the glory of God. And yet he says that he will accept it as evil. I mean, is right a good when done in faith. And that is because of this. That all of the condemnation that our sin deserves has been borne by Christ. Everything in us that would naturally be evaluated as evil and condemnable has been absorbed by Christ. Let's just think of this for a moment. 
God's divine wrath against sin is often presented in Scripture in the metaphor of a cup, of a cup. Sometimes it's the cup of blessing as well. We see that even at the Lord's table. But very often the idea of wrath is also presented in the imagery of a cup. Just listen to this. And as, and as I read these, consider this, a Christian and those who may yet not be a Christian. This is God's response to sin. The sin of a Christian is no less included in these statements than the sin of the one who rejects him. All equally have offended God. So listen, Psalm 75, 8. I'm just going to read them. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Isaiah 51, 17. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling, you have drained down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Revelation 14. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb, speaking of the evil rebellion against Christ. Revelation 16, 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So the cup of God's wrath is an imagery to say this is God's response against human sin. And everyone who knows Christ knows that our sin deserves that response. That our sin deserves that. That we could never stand in this judgment with any sincerity of faith and be accepted of the sincerity of our faith. We could never stand before him and say, well, I will be accepted as a good deed because of how sorry I felt for the bad things that I've done. It can never be uh, confidence to stand in this and say it's good because I really tried to make up for all of the bad things that I've done. None of those atone for sin. We sing that song, don't we? Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Why do we say the cross? Because that is where the divine wrath for our sin was ultimately judged. Now remember the imagery of the cup and listen to the words of Jesus in the garden. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed the holy lamb of God. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here, keep watch with me. And then he went a little beyond them. This is the son of God. And he fell on his face. And he prayed and he said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He came again to the disciples. He found them sleeping and he said, you could not keep watch with me with one hour. Watch and pray. You may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And then he went away again a second time. And he prayed, my father, if this can't pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
He did it a third time. And then he woke them up when the betrayer was coming. And he said, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Why can we hear these words, knowing that God will judge the earth, knowing that the Holy One of Israel will hold account every act, knowing that nothing that we can offer him will be accepted as good on its own, knowing that nothing can atone for our sin, knowing that all we can bring to him is iniquity that deserves a just recompense. How can we stand before him and offer anything that can be counted as good? That's why. Because the cup of divine wrath was drunk by Christ. It's because on that cross, he drank the wine of the condemnation for our iniquity down to the dregs for us. For us. On our behalf. So that we wouldn't have to. So that the judgment we deserve would not fall on us because he took it on to himself. And that we would receive just the opposite. Love and fellowship. And now in Christ then, this God whom we've offended, this God whom we have rejected, is the God who will accept our meager acts of faith because they are washed and cleansed and made pure and acceptable in Christ. And in Christ alone. In Him alone. We can stand in the judgment And that should motivate us to say, then I want to offer something that will be good. And as Paul said, I want to do what is pleasing to the Lord because I will stand before him who has done this for me. And he earned the right as the one who bore our sin. He made it possible as the one to bore our sin and also because he was resurrected from the dead. And this I'll just mention. Acts 17 says this. Familiar? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And here is the, the climax, the end of where Solomon was pointing. He'll judge the world in righteousness. He will uphold justice. How will he do it? Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so the question is for you, when Solomon says God will bring every act into judgment, whether it is hidden, whether it is good, what are you going to offer to God? What are you going to offer him? Is there anyone here who might, in the secrecy of your own heart, even whether you would say it or not, say, I'm going to offer to him the good things that I've done. He'll have to accept me because I'm good. He'll have to accept me because I've made this sacrifice. Surely he will accept me because I've helped and I've done things for others. Surely he will accept me. Surely he will see all of the Bible study that I've done and reading of the scriptures. Surely he will see the sacrifice that I made. And that will be the grounds on which I can stand before God and he'll say, you've done good. If that is your hope, it is a false hope. It is a hope that will only draw from the lips of our Savior and the judge of all the earth Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. But if we look forward to this day and we can say, how can I know that the meagerness of my faith, the littleness of what I offer will be accepted? When we don't look at what we're offering, but we look at the one we're offering to, Christ. We look at the one who's redeemed us, who clothed us with his righteousness, has given us grace. And we say, what I offer you is not worthy of you. 
We understand when the hymn writer says, were the whole realm of nature mine, it would be a present far too small to give to you. Everything from my life that I could offer to you is not worthy of you. I can't give you anything. What I can do is trust you. And what you have said, you've accomplished for me in Christ. I can trust in Christ. And I can say what I offer you isn't worthy of you, but I offer it in the sincerity of faith. I offer it as gratitude. And God, in infinite mercy and kindness and love, looks at our puny gifts and our puny lives, even the best of them, and out of grace and grace alone in Christ, will say, I'll take it because it was done for my son. I accept that because it was done for my son. Come in, enjoy the gifts, the inheritance of my son that is now yours, my good and my faithful servant. Doing to hear that in all of our lives and that you will hear it on that day. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. We indeed would be without hope if it were not for our glorious Savior. Let us meditate on him. Fill our hearts, Holy Spirit, with his beauty, with his glory. You said that you who called, said lights are shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our heart to show us your glory in the face of Christ. Let us seek no other glory, want no other approval, find no other pleasure greater than the pleasure of knowing Christ. And though we desire that, Lord, we know that we don't live that out as we want. And so continually call us back when we stray. Continue to keep before us that great day when we'll stand before you and sustain in us that desire to give you lives that will be pleasing to you for your honor, for your glory, for your pleasure, because you are worthy. And it's in the name of Christ we pray, amen.